0: Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Now before we start, I have to make an apology. I am on the road this week doing speaking gigs and I did have every intention of being in a studio to talk with Robbo and our good listeners, but the NBN system from all the way from Dubbo to Sydney is Kaput, and it's been out for some four days. So thank you to our listeners at Telstra. (laughs) So currently, (laughs) mate, I'm sitting in my ute, uh, parked outside a coffee shop uh, in the Central West, uh, travelling. Uh, so if, this, if the sound and you hear trucks or dogs barking or somebody knocking on my window folks or cows Wendy's mooing but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah not a great start to uh, the week any house any who's, we have got a signal hey mate we tell
1: people all the time to get out of the office and into the you know into the open That's air so it. there you go you've taken your That's own lesson it.
0: And I did get a decent cup of coffee, so I'm, uh, I'm very happy with that. So uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, we do what we do, try and get a show to you each week. Another great show this week with a thought leader, Peter Cook. Uh, we're also going to pay tribute to the thin white Duke, David Bowie, who had a massive impact on Robbo and I as we were kids and working mm. in radio and stuff, so... We want to do some lessons of rock from David Bowie and we're also going to look back through the archives of the Mojo radio show to pick out. It's because it's, it's interesting, Rob, that many people listen to a show but I don't think people understand as a medium that iTunes will carry 50 back catalogue episodes, prior episodes, people can just sift their way mm-hmm. back through and listen to at their leisure.
1: That's right. You don't have to wait to see what turns up on your feed. There's uh, there's plenty of back catalogue. And if we since we are past the 50 mark, if you go to the website, the uh the whole back catalogue is there, all the way back to episode one. So um, you could fill your days with back catalogues of stuff.
0: Because we're in the 60s now, so we're, uh, we are, we're doing 64. good rolling into our second year, mm. uh, big time. So but um, well, we have got a great show. We've got lots to cover. I think it's a very valuable show for everybody to have a listen to. Um, so we're not going to wait any longer. Let's just rip straight into it, hey? The Mojo Radio Show.
1: So um, speaking of back catalogues, you wanted to go back and have a bit of a chat about good old Frank
0: Caruso, is that right? Well, I thought we'd do a Mojo Radio Show. flash, flash, flash. 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 So our listening audience, we have a lot of business people. We have people who are about to start a business, those that are currently starting their business, and then we've got other people who may run a big organisation or those that have had a company for 10 years who are looking to invigorate or change the direction of the business. And I met Frank Caruso a few years ago, and he was a guest on our show, and it was a very, very powerful show for anybody in business, don't you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. There were so many takeouts from that show that um, it's invaluable, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: we thought we would flash back to episode 35 just to hear maybe some of the great gold that Frank dropped in them, their healthcare hills. One of the things that I remember mostly about him, Robbo, was him talking about the fact that when he started out, He made sure he had some cash behind him. And generally what I find, I work one-to-one with a lot of business people around the world. And when people have their dream, they want to start their own company. I guarantee that one of the biggest stumbling blocks, one of the biggest fears they have in their mind is having enough money to get through it. And typically what happens if you don't have enough money, you tend to do any job, anytime, anywhere, just to put money in the bank. And before you know it, The dream Mm. you started out with has morphed into a different looking dream because you ended up running down rat holes trying to make money as opposed to being true and pure to the actual dream. But when you've got a little bit of cash behind you, which Frank talks about, I think it takes away that pressure, don't you reckon?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's your biggest worry, isn't it? When you start up Mm. is cash flow. Yeah, totally.
0: Mm. So let's let's just listen to Frank and how he explains how he started his business out with his brother many years ago.
2: I just felt that I needed to have a buffer in the in the, in the bank account. I, I, I can't remember exactly the figures, but overall we needed hmm. we needed forty thousand dollars to open the store. That's fit out in stock. But I went to the bank and um, and asked to borrow twenty thousand dollars, and I wanted a buffer because. You know, you, you go into business, you've got no other uh, income coming in. If your business starts to go backwards or starts to lose money in the first year, no one's going to lend you any money. No friends, no bank. you got Buckley's trying to get money out of it. So I thought, I want to get the money out of the bank first. If we need it, great. If we don't, I'll just give it back to them. So that, that's a really important um, tip for anyone that's looking at going into, into business on their own, always have a bit of backup. And, mate, that was my saviour because the first year uh, we lost $13,000 in business. And if I didn't have that money there sitting there, I would have been out of business.
1: You know, it's funny. I think back and, and, and I can imagine Frank standing out the front of his shop <laughs> spruiking people. He talks about it later on, it in in, later on in that episode as well, um, you know, Encouraging people to come into his shop and keeping him there for hours talking about health foods.
0: <laughs> oh, mate, Frank tells a good yarn.
1: He loves a good. <laughs> he loves a good chat. <laughs>
0: hey, he loves, loves a, a good, good chat. chat. Yeah, yeah. He would have been out there, right? here. And he openly said it himself that he spent so much time talking to people about his passions and dreams. He went, well, maybe I should do it myself. So, mm. um, folks, I got to say, it is a flashback. He is terrific. That episode rated its head off for us on iTunes mm. and um, on Stitcher. It's, if you haven't listened to it yet, go back to the catalogue, uh, episode 35, Frank Caruso. It's a gem. It's gold. There's gold and then there are heels.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Gold and then there are vitamin pills, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Golden lined vitamin pills. <laughs> oh god, if I go there. Getting your mojo working. This um,
0: is the Mojo Radio
1: Show. Alright, we've got a busy show this week, so let's whip into this week's interview,
0: shall we? We shall, and we mentioned at the top of the top of the show that we are now sixty odd shows into it, but one of our first ever guests was a guy called mm. Matt Church, who started a business called Thought Leaders, who essentially helped people to unlock their ability, their creativity, their ideas, and their business to help them become a thought leader in their chosen category. And Matt Church has got a partner in that business whose name is Peter Cook. And I've been reading Peter's stuff and listening to the boys now for many, many years, and I think they're absolute stars in what they do. And I know a lot of people they've helped. So we uh, we sent a note out to Peter to see if he'd be so kind to come on the show and share a little bit of the mojo that Matt Church, Peter Cook, and the guys that Thought Leaders have. So, uh, Peter Cook, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Just to start us off, can you just put us in the picture of um, the kind of work you're doing on a day to day basis and who you'd be
3: doing that for? Sure. So, the thing that's taking most of my headspace is a program called Thought Leaders Business School. Yep. And that's a 12 month program that We're running here in Australia at the moment and launching in the U.S. 2016 for experts. So what we call thought leaders running a thought leaders practice, Um, people who have specific expertise and are out there. Giving advice based on their expertise, so typically through speaking, authoring, training, mentoring, facilitating and coaching.
0: So how do you decide who to work with on that, Peter? If there's someone listening who goes, I think I could be, I think I'd like to be, what's the stepping stone just for someone who may be contemplating to know whether they would fit your business school or not?
3: Great question. So our mission is to help clever people be commercially smart. So, there's our our first criteria is um, you need to have some ideas to share. Um, To be a board leader, obviously, you need to do some thinking. Um, And one of our, I guess, benchmarks or ways of answering that question is to say, do you have a book in you? So, one of the criteria is one of the deliverables for the 12-month program is that you write a book and... So, if you're thinking, "Yeah, this might be something for me," one of the ways to answer that a question is say, "Have I got a book on my bucket list? Is there, this something that I reckon I've always I've got inside of me and want to get out of me? Um, and if not, this probably isn't the program." Um, you also got to be willing to sell yourself.
0: Peter, I was talking with a guy some years back, and we had both published books through a recognised publisher. Yeah. When he spoke about the premise of his book and even the title of the book, it immediately came to mind with two or three books that were exactly the same. Yeah. And in my mind, there was no real compelling originality. There was no compelling point of difference. And consequently, within a month or two of the book being out, he was reading me saying, it's not selling. What do I do? Yeah. Does it have to be a completely original piece of content? Yeah, there's a
3: a few good points in there. Uh, The first one is um, don't write a book and expect that it's going to sell itself. Mm. So even if you have a publishing deal, it's almost like when you finish writing the book, that's when the work starts, not when you can sit back and say, okay, it's done now, and then be surprised if you don't do anything that no one buys it. We also think of your thought leadership in a particular area, a little bit like a PhD. So it needs to cover what's the current thinking, and you need to be on top of the current thinking and what's already been written in the field, but then extend it in some way. So it doesn't doesn't need to be entirely original. It doesn't have to be every idea in your book is groundbreaking, but you Mm -hmm. do need to extend the thinking if you're going to be a thought leader. And... Part of that, though, can be taking what's already out there and packaging up in a way that makes it relevant and meaningful and engaging.
0: I like that PhD idea. That's good. I mean, it's that's, that's a different framing to think of, is it? Actually having to do some work, really dig, spend some time testing. Like, I kind of like that idea.
3: Yeah, we, Matt Church, you've um, spoken to, invented this tool we use called a pink sheet or an intellectual property snapshot, which is a way of capturing a unique idea And we reckon in any domain of expertise for our thought leaders to call yourself an expert in leadership or communication or productivity or resilience or whatever it is, you need to stick 52 of these original ideas in a folder. So you have a folder called resilience. You need to come up with 52 ideas that sit in that folder. And once you've done that, we say that gives you the right to call yourself an expert in that domain, and we call this process mm. a commercial PhD. Yeah. So you don't get a, uh, you don't get a certificate. You don't get to call yourself a doctor, but you actually get the conviction in your own thinking to have an original book, but also to be able to get up on stage and feel like you have some depth to you.
0: As a keynote speaker, you're out and about doing these gigs, and you've spoken. Uh, to organisations about enterprise thought leadership. What, what is enterprise thought leadership and how do I do it? What, what, do, what do we need to do? Yeah, that's
3: the idea that rather than promoting the brand um, within an organisation, you can promote individuals. Right. Elevate individuals as thought leaders, put them in the market And that's going to do a a better job or a complementary job to just promoting the brand. So it's something that um, HP has done in the past where what they'll do is they'll send fabulous speakers to conferences without charging and without flogging HP products. But just by having somebody who is brilliant from Hewlett-Packard speaking at a conference about, obviously, something that's related. Mm. Um, that does great things for the company and for engagement within the within the organisation.
1: Does it take a particular type of person to do that, Pete,
3: or can anybody do that? No, it definitely takes a particular type of person.
1: So, what are we looking for?
3: Um, again, somebody who has some thinking that's beyond, beyond what's normal. Mm-hmm. So... It, this so this is typically the high potential people within an organisation or is there's a, in, in a typical company you have a whole bunch of systems and you have a whole bunch of people whose job it is to implement those systems and to mm-hmm. follow those procedures, and then there's a few people who are extending what the organisation does or what the thinking is, um, and they're the, often the people who are going to get bored, um, who feel like they're being wasted. Who are more likely to leave, mm. and so in, it's a way of so part of it is a retention strategy for for the best and brightest, um, and and it takes it also takes some courage from an organisation because typically what an organisation will do is say we'll build the profile of our organisation so it doesn't matter when people leave.
1: So would you so would you be would you suggest that for smaller businesses that you would be recruiting on those if if we were going to go down the track of what you're suggesting and using you, would you suggest that we recruit on those principles? Um no. But I mean this
3: is again it's a different question for a small business and a corporate. Obviously corporates will recruit talent. For a small business, you still recruit
1: for the roles. But look for some of those qualities though, I would imagine.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And for small and micro businesses, this is often the founder of the business Mm-mm. can evolve into this. Yep. So there's potential for the founder who has made himself obsolete to then turn herself into a thought leader and then she can go out, um, write a book, speak, build her practice and her brand but use that to feed the business and she can become the primary brain maker for the business by speaking and um writing and having a profile. Richard Branson's a good example of that at a, at a larger scale. Yeah. So right. he's clearly a thought leader. He will speak for 75 grand a pop. So if you want to get him at your conference, you can do that. And he does that 50 times a year. Um, he puts out a new book every year or two. And he also mentors entrepreneurs at, at Necker Island. So you can pay 25 grand and go and hang out with Richard on his you island. The sums on that. For,
1: uh, for a weekend. Yeah, I was just going to say, Gary, we might we might get hold of Richard just for a... We had
0: some guests on just recently, Peter, and they'd been to Necker Island. So, um,
3: gee whiz, 25 grand a pop. Yeah. yeah, and across all three, across his speaking and his authoring and his mentoring, it's uh, about a $9 million practice. So he's a black belt, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no wonder he's bloody building spaceships, eh? Robbo, um, Peter has this... The reason I mentioned black belt, Peter has this system where you start as a white belt and you go through the belts as you start to build your influence and you obviously build your revenue. And Peter, on a video I saw you spoke about the beginnings of being a white belt and you're starting out in business. The first stage is being a white belt. And you spoke of one of the first stages of being a white belt was to define who your target audience was and in doing so start narrow, um, which you said it was quite contrary to what most people do. And I have to say that when I hear people starting on their own, be it as a thought leader or starting a business, they tend to take on whatever work is out there. Yeah. They're so concerned about making budget, making revenue, paying the bills, they just take whatever. And sooner or later they end up just, and also ran doing, they can't answer the question, what do you do? Can you explain your philosophy behind Why it's important
3: to start narrow? Yeah. Uh, One of my mantras is market narrowly, deliver broadly. And it's a paradox, like you say, that we think if we narrow down too much, we're going to exclude too many people. So we cast our net wide, but it actually has the opposite effect. If I say I'm a business coach and I can help any business, there's 2 million of those in Australia, but you're not going to – it's hard for me to find them. I mean, they're everywhere, but if I ring up and say I'm a business coach – that just annoys business owners and if I ask you, do you know any business owners, you do, but you're not going to introduce me because yeah. it's it's too broad. Um, I accidentally stumbled across a cluster helping bookkeepers. So this is an uh, offering in my practice. We talk about clusters in our, in our jargon, I guess. Um, so I have an offering in my practice which is just for bookkeepers. Um, I coached a bookkeeper for a number of years and then ended up teaming up with her and creating a set of systems to sell to other bookkeepers. And there's only 12,000 bookkeepers in Australia, so much, much, much narrower. But since doing that, it's much easier to get in front of bookkeepers. It's much easier to get bookkeepers into a room. And one of the differences for us between this approach for uh, someone running a thought leader's practice compared to someone running a business is we talk about a practice being more like or well, a thought leader running a practice being more like Da Vinci than Henry Ford. So da Vinci was a polymath. He was you can imagine Da Vinci's website being uh, an astronomer, an inventor, a painter, etc etc etc, a sculptor um, And so we talk about thought leaders having multiple domains of expertise and working in multiple niches. But each of those individual niches niches should still be
0: narrow. Do you have a feeling that social media has changed the importance of our message, Peter? Uh, I've heard and, and seen some of the stuff that you've written about the target, and then getting your message very clear as to why you, what your point of difference is. But I just, I just feel today that maybe social media is lessening the importance of the message. But we're now getting more caught up in the delivery mechanism, but we're not thinking about what's actually being said in order to create thought leadership. Is that, would you share that view?
3: Um, I think there's always been, before social media, there were other ways that people avoided (laughs) doing this work, of refining the message and actually getting in front of people one-on-one to sell. And I'm not saying that social media isn't important, and it shouldn't be part of your strategy. But the key the key way that a thought leader, particularly at the bottom belts, particularly if we're talking white belt and yellow belt and green belt, is going to be selling their programs is by meeting people in their target market and having a conversation about exactly what is that they do, what are the problems that they solve and what's the journey they take people on. And most of us are scared of that conversation and avoid sales. And so we think, okay, well, I'm doing social media so, and I'm writing my blog and I'm implementing my SEO strategies and I'm going to networking meetings, so I'm doing marketing. If, it, if you're not doing it to put people, to get people in a situation where you can call them up and have a meeting and put your offer to them, uh, it runs the risk of just being an avoidance strategy.
0: I thought that was gold. You just said it's knowing who you're talking to, who, who your target is, being very, very narrow. Then, did you say yeah? It, uh, tell them the problem you solve. What was the third bit, Peter?
3: Yeah. So, what's the problem? So, the problems that you solve, and the journey that nice. you can take people on. So, if I'm talking to thought leaders, I'm very clear about what is the what's the value that that we give. I can help help a thought leader earn half a million to one and a half million working 50 to 200 days with one or two support staff yeah. and do that doing work you love with people you like the way you want. So it's a really clear value proposition that there's obviously like there's a lot of thought that's gone into being very precise about that. Mm. And then I know the problems that experts face, the thought leaders face, and I can say very clearly here are the problems that I help. These people face and then the journey is that white belt to black belt journey. Mm. So it's um so it's so that cuts out a lot of people. But I can say if you're a thought yes. leader and this is what you're looking for and these are the problems that you're dealing with and you're going on this journey, that's what I'm an expert in. This is what I've spent twenty years thinking about and so I can help you do this. Your
0: latest book Correct me if I'm wrong, is the new rules of management, transforming performance, productivity and engagement by implementing projects that matter. Peter, what are
3: the new rules? Basically it's a a book preaching the importance of implementation, that to manage projects rather than managing mm. people. And that as a as an individual we we like in our in our roles wherever we work, there are tasks that we do and there are systems that we follow. But what we're going to be remembered for and what we're going to be proud of is what are the projects that we implement that make a difference. And it's the whole, whole book is about us individuals and as teams and organisations. How do we fight for those projects and how do we make them happen? The underlying premise being we're not, as human beings, we're not designed to implement long-term projects. We've, we've evolved um, over hundreds of thousands of years to surviving jungles with very short-term stimulus and response and the idea of, becoming financially independent in 10 years or earning a degree over four years or setting up a business to sell it in five years or a 12-month project to get fit, our hardware, our wiring, our biochemistry, our neurology, none of it is set up for that. And and so that book is, is all about what are the hacks that we can put around ourselves to be more effective at implementing long-term projects.
0: Could you suggest a couple of those things? Are there things that come to mind immediately to say, you know what, these are these are the top things that somebody could write on a piece of paper right now to help
3: that process along? Sure. The first is an external accountability structure. So because we're tribal animals, we're much more wired to not let other people down than to not let ourselves mm-hmm. down. So if I want to get fit, and I say to myself, "All right, I'm going to get up at six o'clock in the morning and go for a run," um, that may or may not happen. Um, if I then say to you, "Let's let's meet up at six o'clock and we'll go for a run together," and you say yes, then there's then I'm going to do it. There's no way I'm going to leave you standing there on the corner. Yep. Um The second is support. So similar, but rather than someone you're accountable to, who who is it that's going to help you on the journey? Who are the the mentors or the uh, the friends or the team members or the evangelists for your project. And the third one is the setting up the right frameworks. So this is being clear about why you're doing it, understanding how. Most stuff's been done. There's a methodology out there. There's one that works. Go and find that. Um, and environment is another, is a big one that we underestimate the impact of.
0: I love that term, how to... A group of evangelists around you, it's such a powerful word. How do I know who a true
3: evangelist is? The evangelists are the people who who are going to be out there promoting what you do. Yeah. And that's a different role to, the, I think, the support that you're talking about, mm-hmm. who's going to be there in the tough times. Mm-hmm. And for both of those, I think you only know by what people do. Yeah. So the only way I know of knowing who's going to be there in the tough times is watching. Yeah. I guess you could observe that about how they are with other people, but primarily it's who was there for you when you went through tough times mm. and how you know who's going to be an evangelist is who's being an evangelist.
0: Pretty a really good point, actually. It's uh, I think you're quite right. It is It is a tough one, but until those situations have arisen or you've observed them in somebody else, and I can think of, things that I've been through, case studies I've been through myself personally where they're the people who say, mate, if I can help in any way, and you say, well, as a matter of fact, I, I could use some help. They go, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's a bad weekend, mate. Yeah, no, nah, I can't help you that weekend. <laughs> yeah. others, others will say, what do you need? I'm here to help. And if you don't ask me for help, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to do something. Tell me what it is. And then hound you to make sure they can be there to help you. And I think you're quite right. Is that people sh- do show their true colours, and I talk about, you know, having a counsel in terms of having kept keeping your mojo, having the right people around you, and the the right the counsel for me is when stuff hits the fan, the people who are walking in the door, not the people walking out the door. But you're quite right. I think until until it's stress tested, you really don't know, do you? Yeah, that's a really nice. Um,
3: <laughs> that's a, a nice metaphor
0: for it. But I can ask you. Um, You've got a beautiful daughter who's now just on three years old in Scarlet. Yeah. As a parent, you are dealing with thought leaders and people who aspire to be or at the top of their game around the world. Yeah. Is there something that comes to mind for you as a parent that you are implementing, not to do with Scarlet, but in your own persona, your own mind that you're implementing each day to ensure that Scarlett grows up to be her own
3: thought leader in her own world? As a, as a father of a girl, having a daughter, um, something that I'm really passionate about is helping strong women. And that's something that I'm over the last year, the last three years with a little girl, I've become so much more conscious of how how much systematic sexism there is everywhere that I was completely unconscious to before I read kids' books and I see how many of the main characters in kids' books are, are male, not female, and just how the world is, is presented um, differently men and women and so that's something that I'm really, really happy about and and I'm really, not that I'm not passionate about helping our blokes as well, but I'm really, yeah, really thrilled with how how this is an environment that is a pure meritocracy and how that does then result in um, women doing Fabulously
0: well. It's quite profound, Peter. That's um that's not something I would expect as an answer to that question. I think that's, <laughs> uh, no, I do. I think that's really very noble, and I concur with everything you're saying. Because when you stand in front of a lot of groups, um, primarily, uh, it's you know most cases guy focused. Um, yeah. Particularly in leadership and stuff. Although I must say, the last couple of months, I've done a lot, a few speaking jobs where the room. Has been primarily ladies, but I find that very specific to the role. Yeah. As opposed to you know generalising. Um, just just on your just digressing on your personal stuff, mate. We we were looking to get you on the show some months back, and you sent me a lovely note saying, Look, "Love to come on the show. Happy to do it later in the year." But I'm heading off on a meditation retreat for uh, four four or six weeks or something. Um, Too much. What was Two months. <laughs> what was Two the months. retreat about, and what impact has it had on you since you finished the retreat and returned back to
3: civilization? Yeah, it's. It, it, I think it ties back to the the name of your show, and one of the pieces that I actually talk about in the the implementation book is that more important than managing time and more important than managing priorities is managing your mojo. In terms of getting important stuff done, in, in terms of implementing projects and matter, and in terms of really everything, um, and for me, this is one of the key ways that I look after my mojo. Um, you know, is the key way um, is my meditation yeah. practice, and so it's so the practice um, in my regular day to day is at least an hour. Yeah. Of eyes closed meditation every day. And then the retreat in Spain is part of a six month course learning to be a meditation teacher. So we were there for one month last year and two months this year, and then hope to get back for another month next year, depending on how we go with a newborn and a three year old. Um, But at the end of, once I've done a cumulative six months um, in Spain with my with my teacher, then I'll be a credited meditation teacher myself in this um, style of meditation. And we'll start to incorporate that more into yeah, what, I, what I teach already, uh, thought leaders and others.
0: Is, is it in your mind that you are doing this, Peter, for, I suspect, a personal benefit? And secondly, is it being done because you believe that it should be a part of the thought leadership DNA for any thought leader needs to go down this, down this path?
3: Yeah. So firstly, it's um, definitely it's for my benefit. So everything, everything in my world gets better when I'm meditating. I'm, better, I'm a better dad. I'm more present with Scarlett. I'm more able to just be with her when I'm with her. Um, I'm a better I'm a better husband, um, I'm a better thought leader, so my speaking is better with a meditation practice. I'm more present when I'm on stage. I'm less in my head and more with whoever I'm with. My mentoring is better. I can be just with the person I'm with. One example, I used to have a lot more anxiety before a coaching or a mentoring session about what I was going to say and could I deliver the value and what if I ran out of things to say and that has really evaporated. I now am much more comfortable saying, okay i'll just I'll just show up and I'll be present and whatever's needed yeah. will come." Um, and it does, and my mentoring is more powerful as a result. Um, and then I think the the part that you said about this is good for the DNA of thought leaders, that's more of yeah. a bonus. So
0: so how does it fit into your day, Peter? I'm just curious. an hour. Is a, is a substantial
3: investment. Typically, it's going to be three sessions of 20 minutes to mm-hmm. half an hour each. So that's my ideal day is that I wake up. Um, the first thing I do is is sit and meditate for 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, then um, Scarlett, when Scarlett wakes up, um, I have her, we do breakfast together, drop her to daycare and then start work. Then another session in the middle of the day and then um, a session sort of at the end before going to bed. But the thing that's made the biggest difference to my practice is, is setting a rule that it's one hour no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I get back to a hotel room somewhere else at 10.30 at night and I haven't meditated all day, that means before I go to bed, I sit down for an hour and oh. it's a complete non-negotiable for me. Yep, yep. And by being non-negotiable, it actually makes it easier. My teacher, um, one of the cool things he said last time I was in Spain is that 100% committed is much easier than 99% committed. Great line. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I wish I'd said it. (laughs) Claim it. Um, Peter, if you
0: are in, say you have a day where you're in control of your day, I'm curious that you've done, you've woken up in the morning, you've meditated for 20 minutes, you are in your day and it's, it is, a, a, this, let's call it a normal day or a day you control. When you do your 20 yep. minutes during the day, do you go to a park? Is it in the office? you close the door? Is it in amongst
3: people? Do you, like, how do you, how do you specifically do that? Yeah, one of the, one of the things I love about our, so it's Ascension, it, uh, the label or the name of our meditation. Um, and one of the things that really suits me about it is that you don't have to sit cross-legged and, um, kneel down, it's, you can do it in the right. chair, you can do it lying down and, and I've, got a, I've got a meditation chair that I
0: use. Who's, who's the thought leader you most admire? So you are reading a lot, you're seeing a lot, you are mixing with a lot of very impressive people. Is there somebody who comes to mind, do you go if you were going to aspire to somebody, that's who it would be? Yeah, that's a
3: really that's another good question. And there's a few different people, um, Matt Church who I work with and who you've spoken to yep. just for his volume of thinking. So he's absolutely prolific in the amount of just the production of, of amazing ideas and people people look at him and think, wow, this this is, is a genius this, um, with what he's created. And then I see the... The volume of work that goes into it, and say no, it's not. It's not that just every idea he comes up with is brilliant. there's just there's five thousand ideas <laughs> that he's that he's put pen to paper on, and you're looking at the best ten of them. Dominique Bertolucci is um, one of our thought leaders who's in the UK, who definitely um, have a lot of admiration for. She and and how she's combined her thought leadership with her being a mum. And went to went from Australia to England and then didn't know anyone and said she wanted to double her income and half her hours when she was having a, um, when she had her first child and, and did that and and said one of the favourite things that she said that I loved is that she wants to do work that she'd be happy to do for free and wants her clients to feel like they would have been happy to pay double very nice well mate
0: um, this has been great we thank you for taking a break in amongst your day to speak with us I I admire the work you're doing the way you've got it balanced uh, it's been very cool connecting with you mate thank you very
3: very much for inviting me on and taking the time and love the whole premise of your show Um, love that this is all about helping people get their mojo happening Um, I'm really happy to be part of it. Thank you. Getting your mojo working. This Um, is the Mojo Radio Show. Well,
1: that's another 40 minutes full of gold.
3: Yeah, he's
0: good, isn't he? That that, that business, honestly, folks, if you've got some information in your brain that you want extracted and put into a book and podcast and you really uh, have a desire to be a thought leader, Give them guys a call.
1: Mm, absolutely, we've been doing a lot of brain stuff lately, haven't we? We have. Maybe we might have trouble with our own. Do you reckon? <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah, it's a bit self-indulgent, isn't it? It is a little. <laughs> anywho's, anywho's. So, um, speaking of being self-indulgent, we were going to have a bit of a chat about David Bowie, weren't we?
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I um, it's I've, I've thought a lot about Bowie and growing up and the admiration I had for the guy and there've been a lot of fantastic blogs floating around that I have been indulging in over the last mm. week and mm. there's so much to learn from that guy.
1: Yeah absolutely and well I mean he gave so much too. I mean that the little piece I did last week uh, I tried to I tried to not only sort of disseminate the information that I wanted to disseminate but I also wanted to give an idea of the the back catalogue of this guy. You know, and, and the standard of work of this guy. I mean, I think in, in, in the, the the four and a half minutes that the piece goes for, I think there was about 18 songs or something. You know, and all of them are standouts, all of them were chart successes and, and you know it's just a tribute to the quality of the guy and his creativity.
0: I think his creativity is kind of what excites me the most is mm. he changed culture, changed fashion, changed music, lyrically would have influenced I think so many of today's and yesterday's artists. In 1999, he received an honorary doctorate from a prestigious Berkeley College of Music, and he gave a speech at the graduation ceremony. Mm. And when we talk about creativity and the things you and I talk about, like curiosity, Mm. have a listen to what he said in his speech. What I found
4: that I was good at doing and what I really enjoyed the most was the game of what if. What if you combined Brecht vile musical drama with rhythm and blues? What happens if you transplant the French chanson with the Philly sound? Will Schoenberg lie comfortably with Little Richard Can you put haggis and snails on the same plate? Well, no, but some of the ideas did work out very well.
0: (laughs) That exactly nails what we've been talking about in the show for many months now is this Mm. curiosity of people taking the time to go, Well, what if you did?
1: Yeah, if you actually what if you actually stretch the boundaries? What if you push what people think is, you know, the finite boundaries of music? What if you push them around and what if you swap this with that and all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. The other one, which is sort of, I guess, pushing the boundaries in a sort of a way, was part of his, his, part of his songwriting techniques. Was One of them was to, you know, if he was stuck for an idea, was to write down a whole bunch of phrases and words and actually physically cut them out and arrange them in front of himself and, and, and use that as a tool to come up with the lyric for his, for his songs. In fact, I think before the show you mentioned one that you specifically knew he'd done that way, Gary.
0: Well, this song actually came from that process. I'm an alligator I'm a
4: mama papa coming for you I'm a space invader I'll be a rock and rollin' bitch for you If you put three or four disassociated ideas together um, and created awkward relationships with them, the the unconscious intelligence that comes from that those pairings um, it is really quite startling sometimes. A friend of mine in San Francisco developed a program for me on a computer which enables me to do it really quickly. So I'll take articles out of newspapers, uh, poems that I've written, pieces of other people's books and put them all into this, this container of, of information and then hit, hit, hit the, prog- uh, the, the random button and it'll randomize everything and I'll get reams of papers back out of it with uh, interesting ideas. And then I'll either take sentences verbatim as it, as it spews them out, or there might be something within a sentence which triggers off an idea.
0: So it's getting away from that logical line of thinking and having tools like what if, and having the courage, the imagination, and the practice. And the second part is tools like that, we're cutting up random words which you could use for anything from oh, designing a website, writing a presentation, doing a speech for a wedding. You could do anything where you need to think and ponder. Um, it's a, it's just a wonderful tool mm,
1: to use. Absolutely. So uh, so the other thing for me that sort of came to mind for me as I was thinking about uh, David Bowie last week when I was putting the, the, the special together was the way he invent, reinvented himself. And we've spoken about this on the show before, um, I think we did a lesson of rock with U2 and Bono and, and a couple of other similar ones. But, you know, the fact that, you know, he decided to put Ziggy Stardust to rest because he, was, he it was, he, Ziggy was becoming too much of a crutch and he, he actually, you know, went out and had the physical... <laughs> had a physical funeral for Ziggy, you know, it was like farewell mm. Ziggy mm. And, and, and we never heard from Ziggy again, he stayed true to that, you know, and, and moved on and, and, you know, his music changed and, and his persona changed. And he didn't do that once, you know, he did that so many times. I mean, there are there are people out there who, you know, you can debate back and forth his commercial stuff, his, his more commercial music. But again, that was just another, another incarnation of Bowie.
0: Brian Eno, who did most of his production work, he was his producer, said that he said, quote unquote, that he was a constantly changing person. And I love the story how he said he was losing himself. Mm. So he moved to Berlin, which is a real creative, artistic hub. Mm. And he gave away all his possessions. And he said to camera, I spent my time in a checkered shirt, a pair of jeans. And I bought myself a push bike and I started completely from scratch because it was the only way he'd get back to his true self. So in a way, there's this massive movement now called minimalism, where it's not having a lot of possessions. It's having the possessions that bring you joy or are functional. And people are now cutting back on everything. And so if you go back to the 70s, when he moved to Berlin, I mean, he was a minimalist and he was recreating himself because I think... When you're an artist like that, you get so caught up in this machine, mm. you probably do tend to forget who you really are. So it's and now it's probably a good time of the year to do it, to sit down and say, you know, do you really know who you are and what you're about? And getting rid of the stuff that's having impact that is really not true to you and your values. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Have a bit of a clean out.
0: Actually, this, just one last thing that I found fascinating, which I did not know about mm. Bowie, was that he was a ferocious reader.
1: Right probably stands to reason, doesn't it?
0: Well, it does. And then when you look at people like Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine, the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, he said, to keep up with what's going on with technology in the world, read 10 books a year. Mm. You know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were asked if you could have a superhuman power, what would it be? They said to be the fastest reader. Mm. And when Bowie was asked by Vanity Fair Magazine the famous Proust question, He said, what is your idea of perfect happiness? And Bowie answered, reading. And the quality he most most admired in a man is the ability to return books. (laughs) So I would say to people listening to this podcast at this time of the year to be saying, what if? Mm. Are you in touch with your true self and it's time to strip away some of the stuff that's not you and not necessary Mm. to recreate? Mm. How many books are you planning to read this year? Um, and start to look at your own creativity and ways to unlock your ideas because this is probably one of the most powerful lessons of rock that we can take. And sadly, we lost a great artist, a great creative, but his memories and his tools and tips and techniques for creating and living, thankfully, live on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just, just one more quick one from me that, that sort of I think stands out as a, as a great lesson from Bowie was collaboration. Um, you mentioned Brian Eno before, who he worked with a lot. Um, and, and Brian uh, said that um, he was also constantly on the lookout for new people to work with. He was mild-mannered and patient and always open to people's ideas. So, you know, you think about some of the collaborations. There was the famous ones with Jagger and, and, um, and those sort of ones. But there were so many others that, you know, never really made commercial headlines, but were just stunning. And you can tell the influences that those experiences had on his own music, just from spending time with other people and and learning from them and and working with them.
0: I think there's something to be said for an artist that's pure to their art, whether it be an engineer, an architect, a fashion designer, or a landscaper. Mm. There's something to be said for collaborating to move you outside of your own comfort zone, to give you new angles and new designs, new thoughts, new ways of doing things. Mm. And being pure to your art where you will do things because you want to explore and you want it you want to see what's possible yeah as opposed to sticking to a tradition and just doing it the same old, same also old. Mm. um there's a lot to take from this guy and i, I must say um uh, going back through all these blogs and hearing you talk and stories and watching our videos and stuff it does uh it is a bit of a time warp but gee there's some good lessons to take out for the future
1: there is absolutely isn't there he was um he was certainly a, a, a one of those people that will just be greatly missed in the industry in so many ways, and you know we Absolutely. we use that as a punchline so often, but in this case, it's so true. You know, we yeah. have had such a the industry has suffered such a huge loss this time
0: around, unfortunately. Well, that is a good show.
1: There is indeed. I reckon, uh, I reckon I've got a good way to play it out to see if you agree. Uh, Triple J, a radio station here in Australia, the, the, uh, the ABC owned by the Australian government, have a segment on their radio station called Like A Version where they invite uh, other artists to play other people's music. Sarah Blasco, a, uh, a female Australian yep. vocalist, was invited to do a version of David Bowie's Starman during the week last week, and it is absolutely stunning. So I think we should use that to right. place out this week.
5: Cool, we're out. It's a god of a small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But a mommy is yelling no her daddy has told her to go but a friend is nowhere to be seen now she walks through a sunken dream to the seats with the clearest view and she's hooked to the silver screen but the film is a saddening bore for she's lived it ten times or more she could spit it. They ask her to focus on sailors fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen, though It's a freaky show show sure. is a life fame Cause Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hoards From Ibiza to the Norfolk broads Rule Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clowns But the film is a saddening ball Cause I wrote it ten times or more And it's about to be rid again As I ask you to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall
4: Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com. Or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoo sound.com.au. And for the right voice, realtimecasting.com.